Hi, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In today's episode, we're featuring the DGA Special Projects Committee's recent event, The Craft of the Director, Me New Leader. This series of conversations with master filmmakers features an in-depth discussion about the directing process, from pre-production through post. Ms. Leader has amassed a variety of directorial credits, including On the Basis of Sex, Pay It Forward, The Morning Show, The Leftovers, Shameless, and The West Wing. Please enjoy Ms. Leader's conversation with fellow director Jeremy Kagan in front of a virtual audience, wherein they discuss how instinct informs her visual approach and the process of reworking the original ending of On the Basis of Sex to include a cameo of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Please welcome Mimi Leader. Mimi, great to see you here. Great to have you here. Um, and um, uh, I've been lucky enough to have the, you know, all of us who are binging at home, I've been able to have a, a Mimi Leader Film Festival, which has been a, quite, quite amazing because your work, both as a feature film director as well as a television director, are, are just, it's pretty astounding work. So I'm looking forward to your sharing how you do what you do. Um, but the first thing I wanted to ask you um, were, who have you learned from? Who have you been your mentors and what have they taught you? And I know one of your mentors was your dad, but, you know, you work with many other directors um, and I'm curious what, what you've learned from others. Well, you know, you learn everything from others, um, from watching their films to uh, working with them. I was a script supervisor way back in the day on Hill Street Blues. And I worked with a lot of directors uh, back then and, you know, watched, uh, you know, what to do, what not to do. Oh, would I do it that way? And that was, you know, I was very young and it was a really great learning experience. Um, but, you know, I've had a lot of mentors. I, I mean, I've had a few, Steven Spielberg certainly mentored me and brought me into the feature film world. And, um, you know, I've always been a huge, and I'm so grateful for, for what he did do for me, uh, you know, uh, giving me the first DreamWorks film uh, the Peacemaker, which was a huge action film. And I, you know, when he offered it to me, I was like, why are you offering me this movie? I'm not an action director. And, uh, and he said, I was, he said, you directed every day on television and you can do this. And I said, all right, let me think about it. And I thought about it for about a second and, you know, he was lovely. And, um, what kind of advice did you get either from your dad or from Stephen, any specific advice that you might share if you were talking to a director who's working with you? Yeah, you know, I know that from my father, you know, how to run a set. You know, he ran a set on respect. And I learned that from him. And I continue to do that in, on every set I, I work on, you know. And that was, I think, one of the biggest things you know, when my father made movies, you know, he made 23 ultra low budget features out of his house, uh, usually, and they cost 300,000 cash flow. He shot them on short ends. We all worked on them. My sister, who was 16, my father would cut negative with a cigarette dangling, dangling out of his mouth on the coffee, on the dining room table. And we were like, you can't do that. And he would just do what he did. And, um, 
you know, I did every job on his films. Um, I was a loader. I, you know, I did everything. In fact, when I made my first short film, I shot it on short ends. Right. When yeah. you, you said the word respect. Can you define it? What do you mean? Well, I mean that, you, you know, you hire, there are all these talented people that you make a film with. You know, you don't make it alone. And anybody who thinks you do, you don't. Uh, you know, you have an incredible crew. You have your production designer, your cinematographer, your first, second, third ADs. You have your line producers. You have your makeup artists. Well, you know what a crew is made up of. And you hire them because they're good. You hire them because they're going to bring something to this party. And they're going to bring their passion. They're going to bring their, their expertise. And so... When I mean respect, I say, you know, I really listen to what my production designer has to say. You know, when we talk about a palette and I say, I want to make this, uh, I, I want blue to be the predominant color of this movie, or I want, I don't want any red in the movie or whatever it is. You know, we talk about those things like why and uh, you know, what does the blue bring out? And, and so, you know, I hire, we hire, directors hire great artists to, to create art together. And that's what I mean by respect. It's listening. Got it. Listening. Um, I want to talk about a couple general things and then go into very specific uh, moments in, in the movies, if I can, in television shows. But the first thing I want to talk about is uh, the issue of resilience. When things don't go right for you, whether it's a job that you wanted and didn't get, or it's a job you got and wish you hadn't, or whether it's a day on a set and you wanted this particular thing and it didn't happen. How do you bounce back? What is, what is your way of resilience? Well, you know, another thing my father taught me <laughs> was, you know, you just stand up and you put one foot in front of the other and you just keep going. Um, you know, resilience comes from, I guess, a deep passion. Uh, to to make something, to tell a story, to to live, to survive, um, and so, for example, when I went to movie jail after Pay It Forward, uh, it was a failure at, at the box office, and even though um, it became part of the American vernacular, and a lot of people did like the movie, but anyway, I went to movie jail and I couldn't get a, a movie for years and you know but i i kept working in television and doing i did 10 pilots um six six of them went to air the point is is that you've just got to have a something deep inside of you that makes you want to get up in the morning and tell the stories that you want to tell i mean resilience is surviving right it's it's a lot of things um, you know, I'm going to pick up on a one more one more beat here. When you're when you're um, the night before you go to uh, you know you come back from the set, um, it's been a rough day. Um, what do you do that evening, and how do you prepare for the next day? When you've had a rough day, either way, yeah, or a good one. But let's go with the rough one first. Well, you know, every day is like first day, and you know, the first day though is always even though I've been directing for 33 years. Um, I still do the same things I did before. I do shot lists. I, I uh, type them up, actually. 
I do it myself. Whoa. I have a system do it. And I just do it because it's something I started doing when I was very young. And I rarely ever look at the shot list unless it's an action scene and there's a lot of pieces and I've storyboarded because I already know what I, how I want to shoot it, what I want to shoot. And then I always, I have to just do it. It's like my security blanket. It's like, check, I did it. Um, but I really like to remain open because I can shoot a scene. You can shoot a scene several ways. And I always have that in my arsenal, in my mind, like, I could shoot it this way, I could shoot it this way, you know, and, but this is how I want to shoot it. And then when an actor comes, when you bring in the actors, sometimes things change and, and for good reason. And, um, you know, you talk about, here's the staging I'd like, and here's what, what would you like to do? I, I just leave it open. And do you, it usually, do, you get a, do you get a good night's sleep? Do I get a good, no, never. I, I sleep, I start sleeping when the calls like go to like nine o'clock. I really, <laughs> I really like split days. Got it. <laughs> I love that. And what's the first thing you do when you get on the set? Usually. Usually I go right up to my first AD who's on the set. And I've been working with Ann, Annie Berger for a long time. And Ann Berger's a great first AD. And I usually just go up to her and I give her a hug. And I know I can't do that anymore. But I usually go to the set and hug everybody. And, and, you know, just good morning, you know, look them in the eye and how are you? And here's what we're going to do. And just talk to each and every person who's around and, you know, clear the set for rehearsal, check in with Annie, you know, is everybody here? <laughs> are there any problems? <laughs> you know, and I usually sit right in the center of the set and I don't know why I'll sit like where an actor's going to sit. I don't know. It's just comfortable. When you're approaching, let's talk, work with ADs. What's that conversation you're having with Annie? What's that conversation you're having with AD if that's the first conversation you're going to have? Well, is everybody here? Is everybody here on time? Um, are we going to have our rehearsal at seven? Um, you know, sometimes, okay, we're not going to have a rehearsal. Someone's late. Okay, here's the setup, guys. And, you know, you give them the setup and, you know, you talk about the day. Here's what I'd like to do all day. You know, I hand out a shot list. Even though I don't look at it, I give one to my AD and I give one to my DP because, you know, I work real closely with my first AD and my cinematographer. And Grady, uh, Michael Grady has been, one of, been my partner for a long time. Uh, and um, since, well, we've done a lot of things together, but uh, I brought him back onto the leftovers. And um, anyway, I like to get a script. I like to go to the location, find the locations. And I like to block very quietly with them, you know. Interesting about, about I'm going to, I mean, AD's responsibilities are obviously double. One is production. Can we get this done when we said we were going to get this done? And how do we do that? And how would you schedule it? But it's also dealing with all of the background artists that you're going to have. And you've had uh, some really, really big scenes. I mean, in Peacemaker, there were the scenes on the streets in New York, um, sort of that last finale, I guess, of season two of The Leftovers, all those people in that sort of you know, makeshift town that's right under, under the bridge. 
Yeah. How do you, how do you, what's your dialogue with your AD and ADs about how to make those things work? And, and let's start with the New York one because it's, there's so many shots, both long shots that sometimes your characters are in the midst of groups of people, obviously the running shots where they're going from various streets you know, in the city. How do you work with your AD to accomplish what you want? Well, Peacemaker was a while back, but I'll try and remember. Um, you know, uh, that was quite a sequence, the, the sequence on foot. And we did it, um, we did it first. It was the first thing we shot in the movie, which was crazy because we shot the film in Slovakia and Macedonia, the main portion of the film. And then when the nukes were coming to uh, New York, you know, so, but we had to start in New York. Um, so I blocked the entire sequence you know, first picking the location, then blocking it with my um, AD so he could schedule it the way it needed it to be scheduled. Like, for example, the big chase sequence where there are all these taxis and George Clooney is running, 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 and he jumps on the taxis and starts jumping from one taxi to another. Well, that was on 42nd Street on a Sunday afternoon, and we shut it down all day. And so we knew that that day was devoted to all that, running up the stairs, running into the kids, you know, running around the corner. And, you know, we also kept our locations very close together so that we could move quickly. And when you were, when you were scheduling, when, for example, in those running shots, did you um, storyboard them? Did you, how did you figure out, well, I know he's going to jump up on this cab. I know he's going to slide in the front of this one. I know he's going to knock down this person. How did all of these things emerge so that when you were there for that only one day to do all that, you could accomplish it? That sequence, I, I do not remember storyboarding. Uh, that sequence was just, I just blocked it and knew what I wanted to, wanted to get. And, but there are a lot of sequences I do storyboard, like, for example, this sequence in The Peacemaker where the nukes are in the truck and we're on the bridge and they they blow up the truck and the truck's dangling over the edge. Well, that was absolutely storyboarded and I had two bridges and that was in Macedonia where we shut off with this main artery for two weeks. <laughs> you can't do that in Malibu Canyon, but <laughs> anyway, you can do it in Macedonia. Um, and it looked just like Malibu Canyon. Um, and I had a smaller bridge where I did the action with the actors, uh, fighting in the truck, hang, hanging over, the guy dangling on the, on the rope, uh, the nukes, and the main big stunt we did, of course, on the main bridge. And, you know, and also the, the crashing of the truck was on the main bridge. And that was storyboarded. And that, you know, you, well, as you know, as, everyone knows that you have these you know, storyboards and you put them on a big board and you really figure out how to shoot them in how you have to shoot them. The boards, the story dictates how you shoot them. You know, you have to like crash the truck first to get it into position. And then, for example, it was very important to shoot, you know, the fight sequence first, you know, Clooney getting pulled up by a rope you know, it, it, I don't remember the exact order because it was a while back, but it's all very planned. Let me jump to, to uh, uh, sort of the, uh, maybe the leftover 
that scene with also a bridge scene. Um, yeah. And I'm interested again, just to specifically talk about the ADs and how you get your background artists to um, do what you want. How you, you know, well, Ann Berger's a, a you know a genius. If anyone wants to work with a genius, she's the greatest scheduler on the planet and one of the most decent human beings on the planet. And anyway, you we we block the scene, and you know I think we shot this finale in ten days, which is absolutely insane when you look at it. And we shot in the encampment on the bridge for three days. And I know that we shot the drone shot at the end. And it was the first time I'd ever used a drone because um, I believe we shot this in 2015 because um, I think I went to Australia in 2016. But um, so that was last. I knew I had to do that last. And I, and I didn't have 250 extras for the entire three days because you're on a television budget. Even though it's an HBO budget, you're still on a budget. And... So all the big wide shots I had to do first, like getting them on the bridge. And then we worked our way backwards in terms of when I needed less extras and we scheduled it that way. But we also scheduled it for performance because I wanted to follow, you know, the arc of Nora, uh, you know, losing the baby, uh, having the baby snatched from her. And that was a tricky sequence working with triplets and having Carrie Coon, a brilliant actress, running with a baby in some shots, then take the baby out, put the dummy baby in, and then running onto the bridge. And then we have this sequence where the woman who stole the baby has dropped the baby, and the baby's in the middle of this bridge. So, uh, you know, we have to schedule how we do that. So we, we put the baby on the bridge. We did plate shots from all angles that I was going to shoot the other sequences. And then I shot it for real with um, Carrie Coon, with partially some of the baby in it, and then some with the dummy baby, and then we replaced. And but that's all like that's all very intricate scheduling to get it done and get it done on time. And you're losing your light, and you're working with 250 extras who are hot in 100 degree weather, and. Um, we're all the extras in, and I'm going to go back to, to, to Peacemaker for a second on the streets of New York. We're all, because there's some really big, big crowd scenes where both uh, Clooney and, and, and Nicole are in the midst of them. Were they all background artists that had been hired by the company, or did you mix them within real uh, people, or how did you handle it? We handle, we hired a lot of extras. Um, yeah. You know, because... We had a lot of extras and stunt people in there when they were running through the streets to protect them. And yeah, people would fold in. They always do. And, <laughs> and, it's, and it's always a challenge, especially these days. Uh, it's super challenge with, uh, with, with movie stars and, and you're on the streets of New York and they just want to walk up and, and they can. They can legally do it. And it's really... A problem. Let's talk about working with actors, which, you know, in many respects, that is sort of the primary function of directors. Um, and I'm interested in, in, in a general question, what you've learned, because you've worked with some major stars and you work with newcomers, um, you work with children. Um, if there are any general things that you would say, 
this is what I've learned about the entire subject. And then I want to talk about some specific scenes and specific uh, uh, work. But any general ideas about how you approach working with actors? Well, you know, first of all, I think actors are usually really smart people. You know, they're really smart and most of the time big hearted and come from great instinct. And I always listen to an actor's instinct, but I always listen to my instinct as well. Um, like for example, I don't mean to jump into something you don't want to talk about, and this isn't really a performance piece, but when, so Scott Glenn, when we went on our journey together in the outback with white, uh, crazy white fellow thinking, um, he had to kill a snake, right? And it was a real brown snake. And then we had a fake snake and I wanted him to kill the snake in a certain way, right? But he wanted to kill the snake his way. I want to kill it this way. But I explained to him, okay, but here's the big picture. In, in the season two opener, we did a cave woman sequence where this woman is, um, you know, it's 20,000 years, I don't know, you know, cave woman, woman, cave time. And she gets bitten by a snake because she, she has a baby and she, uh, she's on a tree getting an egg from a nest. There's a snake crawling on the baby. And then she comes down and she starts whacking this snake, right? And she gets bit by a snake. And I wanted him to be bit the same exact way because I was looking at the big picture of the arcs of all three seasons, of those two seasons anyway. And, and then he got it. And there was no like, yes, let's do it that way. But um, actors, you know, the way I work, you know, I, I, um, I often look different with TV and film. You know, film, you have time. Like I, uh, I had rehearsal with uh, like on the basis of sex. We, I don't like to have a lot of rehearsal, but we, you know, we read through each scene. We talked about each scene, but I didn't want to really have anything or I didn't even want to really work on it. I just wanted to talk about it. Here's what this scene's about. What do you think you want in this scene? How are you going to get it? You know, and so my approach is always from the character's point of view, each and every one of them. And then, of course, it's and the director comes in, me, saying, okay, this is how I'm going to shoot it. Am I going to shoot it from her point of view? Or is this his scene? Am I shooting this from his point of view? You were making a distinction, right? That, uh, by the way, I'm so glad you used that word. You know, what does this character want in this scene? Um, but you were making a distinction between the time that you had in film or have in film, like in Basis of Sex, um, versus TV in terms of working with actors. What's the distinction that you you see? Well, you have very little time in, in, they were just strong actors. And one of them I had actually worked with on Deep Impact. And he reminded me that I cut him out of the movie, which was, <laughs> I'm really sorry, but you're here now. Um, it happens a lot, but, or it happens some, it doesn't happen a lot because there's no time. Right. There is no time. You have your, whatever it is, 12 days to shoot, you know, 10 days to prep, everybody's working, the, the train is running. And um, 
so what I do, what the difference is in television is I do talk to the actors about, okay, let's talk, you know, here's what the scene's about. We all know what it's about, right? And I don't give them a lot of direction ahead of time because it just doesn't make sense to me. I don't intellectualize what the scene's about. We talk about what the scene is about a little bit. And then, then I start giving uh, direction. Once I, let's lay it down. Let's, let's put it up there. Let's throw it out there. How's it feel? What's it, what's it look like? You know, okay, here's what we got to do. You know, you see it and then you modulate, you fine tune, you. Let's talk about a couple of very specific things. Um, because of the, uh, that amazing Australian episode um, with, with Scott Glenn, there's a scene at the end, uh, I guess it's uh, the actress, Lindsay Duncan, who gives this rather long speech um, in which inevitably she breaks down. I don't re- know if you remember, you know, what that process was working with that actress, whether this was very clear that you're going to break down in this scene or I'm, so I'm, I'm asking. Yeah. So um, she is one of the greats, Lindsay Duncan. She's extraordinary. And so we did talk about the scene, what it was about. And, and then we did talk about. And when, that- you, say, when you say what it's about, let's it's, can you give me an example? Suppose I were her at this moment. What would you be saying to me if you were saying what this scene's about? Well, yeah, this is a really hard scene to explain what it's about. Honestly, I mean, it's about a woman who's lost her children. She thinks she once thought to the rapture. She finds out that her children actually did not die in the rapture. Her, the bones were found on her ranch. And when she finds Scott Glenn, he's lying under the cross where they were found. And she found in his pocket a, 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 this is what's hard to explain. (laughs) You know, uh, she finds something that's very um, telling. She's a woman of faith. And she never went and looked for her children. And she did some horrible things. And so I, you know, we talked about, okay, this is what happened. You know, this is a woman who's filled with shame. She's filled with grief. She's filled with loss, you know, and she decides to tell Scott what her story is. And we all have stories. And I did say to her, you know, we all tell ourselves stories so we can get by. And she had a story that, you know, but the story wasn't working anymore because she found him. And so, you know, I, I did say, I want you to try and hold back your emotions as much as possible. But when it does happen, if it happens, you know, let her rip, you know, just feel it, you know, feel it, contain it though, you know, simple. Just keep it set. Yeah, I wanted the scene to be very simple and it and certainly because I was shooting it like this, you know, and um it was big enough. You know, the words were big, everything was the emotions were huge. Anyway, so do you remember um how many takes you might have done with her? Because this is really you know, this is the specificity that I find enormously helpful in trying yeah. to learn. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I shoot with three cameras a lot because I I like to. 
Um, I don't like to wear out the actor as well in a scene like this. And this is probably an eight page scene. You know, it was long and she did it all at once with no breaks. And so I wanted to have like a medium over, I wanted to have a front close up, and I wanted to do a very big, a couple of different profiles from low and I wanted to do a straight on profile. Anyway, so I would say she did it about three times. Got it. And was she consistent? Do you remember that she was able to sort of do what you would ask her to do? Yeah, some some were more emotional than others. There was other another take that was even far more emotional, but it was too emotional. You know what I mean? It was too much crying. It was too much. I you couldn't get through to it. You couldn't actually let it affect you. But you know, when you when it's there, it's there, and you've just got to know when to let go and say, okay, we got it. You know, and that's really scary because you know, because you can get so many different things. And you know, it's funny with actors. Some actors really love to do a lot of takes and some three and done, like with Nicole Kidman and Clooney. Well, I knew from working with Clooney that he was a three take guy and, oh, he would do seven, but he you really three and he's really given you everything he's going to give you. And Nicole really loves to explore. And, and I'm not saying George doesn't like to explore, it's just that he explores within those, within those short takes or within a, a smaller amount of takes. And, you know, Nicole could go on 25, 30 takes. And I learned something the first, so we've done the whole sequence of them running through the streets in New York. And then we went to Bratislava, Slovakia, where I shot their first scene, dialogue scene on an airplane, where they're flying theoretically over to wherever they're going. And, um, you know, I sort of, I was like, mm, who do I go with first? Okay. And even though I had worked with George, I was like, okay, ladies first, let's give it to Nicole. Well, you know, it was just like, she just wanted to keep going and out of respect. And my first scene with her, I was going with her and I knew it was killing George. I, I, I knew it was killing him and three fourths of the day is done. And, um, and, and um, I started shooting with him and there was nothing left. And I, I rapped and we shot him the next morning when we were fresh. You know, stuff like that you can't do in TV, television. You know what I mean? You've got to, you don't spend three quarters of a day on a simple scene like that. But the, the performances uh, of, of, in um, Morning Show and particularly in the finale of the Morning Show, which... Um, it's a pretty sort of amazing by both women. I'm curious how that, though it's a couple sequences, obviously the very final sequence, but there's a sequence on the street with the two of them. It's a walk and talk where it, it's, what, what was the process? Because they delivered for you and I'm interested if there were things that you could tell us about your process with that. Which scene? The walk and talk? Mm-hmm. Let's do the walk and talk first. Okay. The walk and talk. Well, you know, it's in like working in New York on the streets at 10 p.m. Uh, with two movie stars is just like, it's very difficult. You've got crowds. No matter how late you go, they're coming. They know you're there. The paparazzi knows you're there because they see from the location alerts who's there. 
And so it was very difficult. There was security everywhere. So what looks like something, a very simple walk and talk down 54th, I think, onto Fifth Avenue, a very simple walk and talk with a steady cam was really difficult because we really had to ask paparazzi to step back when we rolled around the corner. We had to have our security controlling the people, you know, the, the people who want to just watch. And it was difficult because even though you have a permit to shoot, you know, uh, so there's a lot of interference. So you just have to keep going and you have a great AD team like I did with Annie Berger and her team and a lot of security and you get through it and you have actors who are completely focused, you know, okay, we're not going to, you know, that's why they have security. They're dealing with it. Let's just focus on the scene. Is it working? Um, and, and so, you know, we really just focused on that scene, you know, with, with uh, Aniston trying to get Witherspoon to come back to the studio. And then a, then a, a, a guy comes by with his camera and wants to take pictures and Aniston loses it with him. And it was, we shot it really quickly. You know, I stayed on the steady cam. I had another camera grabbing pieces. I had two people handheld. I had two cameras handheld. But when you, with a scene like that, when you first rehearse the, them before the walk and talk itself, meaning that because there, there are a lot of emotional beats in that particular scene, um, how will you work it? Or, um, or are you, and then how are you going to know where it's going to go on the steady cam and where it's going to stop? Well, you know, between takes, you know, I, I run and I, and I say, I really want you to hit it here. I really want you to emphasize this moment, you know, depending on what it is you want to direction you want to give. You just, I'm just constantly in contact with them saying, uh, could you, you know, whatever the direction is, it's just constant communication and, and a lot of trust. And the multi, it was interesting with the multi cameras, since you like three cameras, where do you position yourself? Particularly if there's an emotional scene that an actor is going to be, be, I mean, you, obviously there are monitors for all these cameras. Where are you? You mean on the street or on, on a set? On the set primarily, on the street, I'm sure. Well, it's I'm pretty close to, I'm pretty close to the actors. I'm pretty close to, I, I don't like sitting in other rooms far away from actors. So I'm either on like little monitors uh, on set right there so I can see them and I can also see what's going on. And I have like, if I'm doing three, I have three little monitors or three big monitors, depending on where I am. And, um, you know, I came from the school, believe it or not, where, um, you know, I used to direct without monitors. So, so did you, <laughs> and, you know, and there's a, there's a great discipline to that in terms of, you know, being able to really look at your actor, really get on that camera, ride the camera. Um, I can shoot a camera because I know how to do the wheels. I know how to shoot because, well, I studied to be a cinematographer, but because in those days, God, it sounds so long ago, but it actually wasn't that long ago, but maybe it was. Um, in order to set up a shot, you really would have to put your eye in there and, and walk around with the camera or be on a dolly and, and see the shot so you're getting exactly what you want. Like I used to ride cranes. Uh, it was fun, too. That was really fun. I used to ride helicopters, too, but 
Those days were done. Got it. Um, <laughs> talk about working with um, Max Shell and and uh, Taylioni in the end of uh, Deep Impact. This is a re, this is a. I'm curious how you might have described the scene to the two of them and what it was like to have it because this is obviously one of the more important emotional moments of connection in the story. Well, that's an interesting story about this because the original script had thousands of people on the beach, had had people like like a party on the beach, people, the waves coming, come on and get us. We're just going to enjoy the last moment of our lives. We're going to surf. We're going to, you know, it was, it was very carnival-like. And I never really bought it. And I asked, are you going to give me thousands of extras? Well, no, you can just plate it. Do a lot of plates and a lot of people replacement. And I was like, you know, I didn't want to do it. I didn't believe it. I, I felt it was, I felt, so I called Stephen and I said, Stephen, I really want to shoot this with nobody on the beach. I want her to go to her home, her, her childhood home. Um, and she's coming to her father to say goodbye and to reconcile with him. I said, I want them alone on the beach, kind of like on the beach. <laughs> Nobody's there. And they know they're going to die, but they're going to die alone together. And I just thought it was much more beautiful with the wind blowing. And, and so that's how we shot it. And, you know, he was like, go for it. And I did. And it was really funny, though, shooting that sequence. So we did the emotional part of the scene where there, you know, where she comes up and, and he says, I once dropped you on your head. And, you know, then she tells him who remembers, you know, there's this picture that um, she denied. She didn't, know, she didn't remember. Yeah. But she tells him, I, I remember the picture. I remember it well. And. It was right there, you know, and the frame had them in it and the house in the background, just like the picture. And so then we did we did the scene where she says, Daddy, the, the you know, we did the emotional scene. But when we had to do the big wide shots and then looking at the wave and the crane up and down shots, as if imagine the, you know, they're just staring. We didn't even do it with blue screen. We just did. The crane's going up and down. <laughs> Imagine the wave is coming. I mean, it just was like we laughed a lot. It was ridiculous, you know. It was, it was funny, you know. So we just had a lot of fun. And then we got rid of the laughter. And then we did it. And the result is it works pretty well. Yes, it does. You, it's interesting about sort of the relationship that characters have before the story you're telling. Um, and so you know, here's a father and, and daughter who are estranged. And I'm interested in, if you had time with them, what you talk about, if you talk about the what happened before this story happened. I, I guess a, a really a, a good example that in terms of actors understanding it is the, the relationship in a basis of, of, of sex between the uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her, her husband. Uh, I'm wondering, because the relationship already well in their case they meet and then but but the relationships exist before the movie starts what do you do to or yeah. do you help an actor or actors to sort of know wait a minute, that's information we need to know or live or experience i mean we do it in television and we do it 
in films as well. I usually write a whole, like, here's your life story. And I do it with the writer, you know, like we talk about what the background is and, and, you know, then I sit with the actor and this is what I think your background is, you know, this is what I think you've gone through. And, you know, they also do their own. And, you know, then we come up with, okay, this is the arc of who you were before this movie started. And here's the arc of where we're going. And um, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, though, we had a real life person, you know, a real live Supreme Court justice. And, you know, that was really, really, you know, something, you know, meeting her and going to dinner with her. I mean, meeting her in her, in her office and then meeting her for dinner the next night and then going to her apartment and her showing me all her pictures and, you know, me asking her questions like, how did you know Marty was the one, you know? And, you know, you're asking someone, not just someone you just met, but you're asking Ruth Bader Ginsburg, how did you know that your husband was the one, you know? And, you know, and she's, she's a real gal. And, you know, and, you know, she, you know, he really looked at her, you know, she, he looked at everything. When you said you got to meet her, when did you decide or did Felicity? And how did you both handle the idea of, okay, here's a woman, she has speech pattern, she has her own look, she's, you know, the obviously the imitating, where, how did you guys create? Yeah. Sorry, create. At one point, I brought Army and Felicity to her chambers, and they met. And and Ruth Bader Ginsburg was quite taken with Marty, because she's a little boy crazy, and she just loved him. And uh, she gave him a cookbook uh, that all the Supreme Court justices' wives had made for him, made when he died. And it was sort of all his recipes and all his uh, and all these memoriams toward him for him. And uh, and I noticed that <laughs> I said I said, "Don't worry, don't worry. She's paying attention to you." You know what I mean? It was like she was all over him. And I said, "Don't worry, we're going to get yours." And you know, just kind of me being a mama, going, "Don't worry." Anyway, Felicity, you know. We never set out to do any imitations, any accents. Just we, we, we actually we had to do an accent because she's British, and we decided on a mid-Atlantic accent. And she had a dialect coach, and um, we we didn't want to do an imitation, but what we we wanted to stay very true to uh, the period, you know, because we were in '56, we were in '59, and then we were in 1970 and '71, and so. Costume design was very accurate. Hair design, very accurate. And I felt really good, really great. E.C. Lucendon, beautiful costume designer, built a lot of those dresses for her. But anyway, the only thing Felicity wanted to do that was physical was she wanted to change her mouth a little bit. So she put in, uh, not plates, what are they called? yeah, little she changed her teeth. Yeah, she put in some coverings on her teeth, like crowns. Like I forgot what they're called. 
just slightly to make her mouth a little bigger. Because Ruth has a, a very big mouth with a big smile. And, and I think just that one little thing she did really hooked her in. And she actually had them put in for the, for the, she actually had them glued in for the show, for the movie, for the run of the movie, because she had the kind where you just slip in and you could hear a list. But anyway, that's the one thing she did do. She did a little augmentation to her teeth. And, and, you know, Felicity, you know, I, I introduced them. I brought them, I brought her to hit the apartment and then I left, I left her alone. I said, I want you to have some alone time with Ruth and get to know her. And they did. And, you know, Ruth, I mean, Justice Ginsburg, I don't mean to call her Ruth, loved her, you know, and, and loved her performance and had a lot of respect for what she did. That the, the transition between what I'll call frustration and anger and then um, a kind of reason and, and empowerment in that last scene in the courtroom. Can you talk about how the two of you evolved that? Because they're real transitions. She comes in one way and it's not working. And now she chooses another way. Yeah. Interested in how you evolved that. Well, you know, I said to her also about the big speech. I said, okay, I'm going to shoot everything. I'm just going to start shooting. And it doesn't matter if I'm on the judges or if I'm looking at you guys, but I'm breaking angles, whatever. Whenever you want to do the big speech, you just give me 20 minutes morning and we'll get there. And I said, we probably won't get there till tomorrow. It's fine. You know, no pressure on you. Because it was a big speech to do. It was another, uh, I think, eight-page monologue. It was huge. And I think it's one of the longest monologues ever put on film by a woman and um and so we're shooting midday and she goes Mimi I'm ready <laughs> I went oh, okay <laughs> you know went to my DP okay let's turn it around three cameras boom and her, her her first take was extraordinary I mean we had talked about it everybody was you know uh, there was applause <laughs> tears and I had her do it a couple more times. And obviously I did a lot more angles and uh, she, she nailed it. She, she really, I feel captured the essence of who uh, Justice Ginsburg was as a young woman, which is very different than the woman she is today, even with her voice. Like we have no recordings of Ruth's voice when she was younger, um, only from the swearing in and the recordings at the Supreme Court. That's all we have. And it's a very different voice, a young voice and an older voice. So we worked on that. She worked on that. How did you look at that scene on that eight-page monologue when you were, before you know, she did it, when you're looking at it? Because, as I said, it's, it's not one theme. It doesn't go like that. It, 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 it goes like this, and then she's got to regroup. And I'm interested in your work as the director, thinking about this before she said she was ready. Yeah, well, she and I had talked about those moments. You know, we had talked this scene through, and we had we had we had rehearsed it a little bit. Um, you know, there were places where I needed her to go down, where I needed her to 
gain strength again. And if she, I don't quite remember the exact moments, but you know, it's what I always do. If I want something, I'll go right, you know, I go up to the actor and I whisper in their ear and I'm very private in terms of directing, you know, actors. I don't like to yell things. I don't like other people to hear. I think it's absolutely personal and private. And, you know, I would say at this moment, I would like you to try and whatever it is I'd want her to try and do. In the, um, uh, this is jumping in that same scene, but it's, it's, a, it's a casting question because the three judges I think are fabulous. And I don't know if you remember casting them, but if you do, can you share that? Uh, well, sure. I mean, one of them's my husband. So that was easy to cast. Um, you, how many times have you guys worked together? A lot. Okay. Yeah, it's always in, if there's something great for him, you know, a part that he's right for, you know, he'll do it. And he's a wonderful actor and, and they had a great thing together. And the other actors, I just, um, I cast out of, um, we shot this movie in Montreal and, and uh, we shot it in Montreal. And um, one day in, in DC, and the judges were great. You know, I, the two others that read were just, I love them. You know, they were just, they were just strong actors. And one of them I had actually worked with on Deep Impact. And he reminded me that I cut him out of the movie, which was, <laughs> I'm really sorry, but you're here now. Um, the one thing about this movie, I don't know if you know this, the end of the movie is, was not the way it was written. You mean where we see Ruth? Yeah. Real justice? Yeah. The end of the movie was a scene in the courtroom where that other lawyer is reading her brief that she wrote, you know, that she was not, you know, she won the big case. And then there was a scene where she's sitting in the back of this courtroom listening to her words. And I said, that is, I can't, no, this is, this ending does not work. It doesn't mean anything. It's like empty. It's like she's in the back of the bus. She just won. And now she's in the back of the room. Um, I, so I was standing in front of this, the courthouse steps with my DP. And we started the movie on the steps of um, Harvard. Right. Uh, and I said, I want to end the movie the way I'm just, you know, I'm on this, I'm on the state, I'm on these steps, just blocking it and, and, and riffing. And I said, this is, I want to do, this is what I want to do. I want to start with her coming up. I want to emulate the shots that we did in the opening of the movie. And then I want to transition to Justice Ginsburg coming in. And so we were going, oh, that's cool. <laughs> that's gonna be good. So I pitched it to my producers and they mostly were on board. And then I wrote a letter to Justice Ginsburg and asked her if she would appear in the movie. And she said, yes. And that was quite a day. And she did three takes. And when I had to do the third take, because focus was not great on the second, she said, just one more. <laughs> you know, it was really, it was, it was funny. She, she and George, three and out. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> three and out. And in the opening of sequence, uh, where, and by the way, the costumes are really powerful in that movie. I mean, that blue dress that she's wearing initially and the red one that comes next. I mean, they're just, you, you just you sort of feel the individuality of this particular character that you guys are creating, that you women are creating. 
Um, and the the choice to go in slow-mo, and I've noticed you use it at, at various times. I'm interested in when your brain says, let's do that. It's usually, you know, when I'm walking, I, I, I look at a scene and I go, uh, you know, like the scene where Reese Witherspoon um, comes in to tell everybody that Hannah Schoenfeld is dead. So we've just, we have just come from a huge scene where we have found her dead. And so we know she's dead, the audience. But she doesn't. She's watching, you know, they have fired Chip, uh, Mark Duplass, and um, everyone's not happy. She gets the phone call. And when she heard the words, and when she walked back into the room, I mean, it was scripted, all words. It was scripted. Um, and I shot it at 24, but I also shot it, I, you know, and I never presented it uh, in my cut with at 24 frames. Um, but I shot it because I just wanted to be on the back of her head. I wanted to be in her head. And it wasn't important to hear the words. The only thing that was important was to see the reactions and to, to feel the loss. And, you know, it's just something that I like slow-mo. I like doing, I like it. <laughs> You use it too much. <laughs> I don't. You use it in in that final sequence in in uh, leftovers on the bridge. There's a again. There's a whole slow mo of those people moving, and and it's extremely effective. I mean, yeah. You know, and it, what is interesting is when one decides to do it. I don't know. It's something that happens. It's it's nothing. Um, uh, it's something I just feel when I'm blocking when I'm reading a material. I know instantly if I'm going to shoot it slow or to emphasize an emotion. Um, it's it's rarely like, hey, you want to shoot it in slow motion? It's not like that. It's planned. It. Talk about working um, in on luck um, with Dustin Hoffman and your experience with, you know, this obviously one of the great actors of many generations. Um, what was the experience? For you? Well, the experience of working with Dustin Hoffman was extraordinary. I mean, Dustin Hoffman, he, he's a master. And um, he likes to talk, you know. He likes to, on set, he likes to talk, 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 talk. You know, okay. I mean, talk about the scene, but then just talk, talk, talk. And it's like, okay, Dustin, we got to go, let's go do the scene. <laughs> and that was fun. And um, so we would talk about the scenes once again. Um, there's this one scene in the, in the stables where he has his horse and they're, we're about to do a big race. And when I was scouting the locations, I went to Santa Anita with the scouts and the DP. And um, I saw these, uh, what are they called? Um, these wraps, these white pieces of cloth. And they're what they wrap the legs of the horses with. Mm -hmm. And they were sitting there and they were blowing in the wind and they were so beautiful. And I was like, ah, oh, I love this. What is this? And, and then I said, you know, I'm looking around and I said, okay, I know, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use this. I don't know how, I don't know when, I just know I'm gonna do it. So then as I started blocking the show, I realized where I was gonna do it. It was going to be a scene where Dustin has come to look at his horse and ask the trainer, is he you know, ready to go? 
And, you know, he's gone through a lot of emotional stuff uh, with his family, you know, with, with the scenes, with the, with the whole, with everything, with the horse and um, with his grandson. And so I had him, I said, Dustin, you know, there's something I want to do. It's not scripted. I want to, I want you to find a connection with a horse, with this horse. And, you know, uh, you know, after you're done with your dialogue, I want you to like touch the horse, you know, and let's see what happens. And then I want you to walk over to these um, pieces of cloth that are blowing in the wind. And I'd like to do a few shots of you there. You know, I want to do a private moment with you. And so he knew, obviously, a private moment is something that no one would see. So he, uh, so he touched the horse and he started to cry. And it was like, yeah, this is happening. And then we moved the cameras over there and, you know, I had two cameras going and, you know, and he lost it a little bit and was holding it in. I kept saying, hold it in. And, you know, and he kept, it, you know, and it was just great. And it was just, and it was, the wind was blowing and it was, it's a, it's a great little sequence. And, you know, it wasn't written. It was just something that really told the story. Well, speaking of private moments, there's a private moment when um, Felicity, uh, when is at the hospital. Um, her husband has had this, you know, uh, um, um, uh, physical, um, you know, health issue. Um, and I, you, you divide a whole series of shots because she's alone waiting in this particular corridor. And I, I was struck by that. I mean, it really suddenly stopped me because of the different angles that you had. They, they were jump cuts. And I'm interested in how that evolved for you. Because you could have just stayed on one shot on her, moved into her face. She would have obviously given you the expression of concern because she obviously had it. But you, that's not how you told the story. And I'm wondering if you remember why you made those choices. Well, I remember wanting to shoot it in, in jump cuts. I wanted to do uh, an evolution of moments of, of waiting. And I wanted to detail it with her her feet, her, you know, what you do when you're sitting there for hours waiting to hear if someone is going to live or die. And so it was, it was just written waiting room. In fact, we were running out of time and they kept saying, we don't have time to shoot this. We don't have time to shoot this. And I'm going, I'm shooting it. <laughs> you know, we are shooting it. And, um, and we shot it. And so it was always my intention to, show a passage of time and because to me it's all in the details it's all in the foot moving it's all in your head going backwards it's all in the detail of uh telling a story is all details there's some the phrase that you just used though there's something really powerful because we're all in a situation of time and money and i'm sorry but you can't shoot it you've got to get out of here yeah. And the question is, when do you, that's also the resilience, but when do you, as you just did, say, no, we have to do this, or I don't know if you use the word we or I have to do this, and how you handle it, because there are going to be people who are saying, mm -mm. yeah, and there's all those people. Well, you, you talk very closely with your AD, and you say, I'm getting this. 
I'm getting this, uh, go send the other camera over there while I'm finishing this. You just are thinking ahead. Okay, I'm not going to spend as much time since I've run out of time. I'm not going to spend as much time as I was going to on this other scene so I can get this moment because we knew we couldn't get back to the hospital. That was it. And um, so you just start, you know, trading off, you know, um, it's when you, you know, are leaving a scene at 70% maybe when, you know, to get a scene at a hundred percent to get the, you know, it's, it's a trade-off and it happens on all films. It happens on all big films, little films, you know, it's always time. It's always a set you're going to lose. There's always something it's, you know, directing is in oftentimes being bombarded with, you know, how do, you know, solutions, how do you shoot something you intended to shoot one way? Oh, we don't have the crane anymore. It broke. Okay. So how are we going to shoot it? You know, you start, you have to think on your feet. Well, I wanted a big wide shot. All right, let's get on that building. You know, let's, you know, you just, you just start dancing. A good dancer. Um, one of the things that uh, you, you, the performance is uh, going to stay with act, actors a little bit more. And I want to talk about camera, but um, in, in that, um, Again, I live here now. Uh, episode. There are some incredibly intense performances, and I'm wondering if any of those, from many of the actors, from I don't know, I'm just thinking of Janet Maloney, you know, suddenly realizing something that she didn't know and going through the transition. I'm wondering if there are any moments that you remember in directing that episode, uh, dealing with the actors to help them get where they got to. Yeah, you know, there's this one scene. Well, there's a lot of scenes, right? It was big. Um, I'm very proud of that that finale. Anyway, there's a scene where John, the actor, oh, I'm trying to remember his name, Kevin, Kevin. Anyway, he he has shot and he has thought he has killed Justin Thoreau. Then Justin Thoreau goes to his alternate universe and he comes back out. And he walks into town, gets to the gets to the clinic, and he kind of passes out on the floor. Now, this is a very simple scene. The guy walks in, he goes, he looks at him and he goes, I thought, I thought I shot, I thought you were dead, basically. And and Justin says, Nope. And then he walks over to him and he goes, he says something like, I don't understand what's going on. And, and Justin goes, neither do I. And it's all about these looks. And on the face of it, it looked like a nothing kind of scene. It just looked like, oh, what am I going to do here? And the simplicity of the scene was absolutely incredible. And I just told them to take their time and to find the relief that he's alive. And to, for once, for this character, to admit that he had lost control of his life, of everything. It was a big admission and to take his time. And the actor just went to this place. I mean, this actor was incredible. And he took his time and he said that line. And I'm telling you, I was on set and I fucking lost it, you know, because it, it was so powerful. And I knew that the scene had just gone to next level. And I didn't, I hadn't seen before that moment that it could actually get to that level. And the actor brought it there. You know, what's yeah. fascinating about this is because of the issue of 
anticipation, which is an issue that we always face, actors face it, which is, I know what's going to happen in the scene. Right. I'm, I know I'm going to discover this. I know mm -hmm. I'm going to admit it. Mm -hmm. And for you to be able to get them to the place of discovery, meaning that you don't know it yeah. until it actually happens. And by saying, take your time, I think is, you know, obviously it worked for, for both of you. It worked and it was, it was stunning. I remember calling Damon, our brilliant writer, Damon Lindelof, creator, um, who's in LA, saying, I can't wait for you to see what happened. I can't wait for you to see this scene. You know, and I would never call him, you know, say this was great or that was great. You know, it was just, I just, it was one of, it was a, a very, I was full of, uh, I was elated. Uh, we all were. It was was, a, I was going to ask you that question. When do you know when you got it? Now, it's an interesting question because on some level, you know, in this moment, you got it because you totally felt it. But, when, you know, but we also talked about that 75%. I don't have time. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, you know, you just have to know it. That comes from experience. You know, I've been directing for 100 years. And, you know, someone who's been directing for a year, you know, you're, you're going to want to cover yourself. You're going to go, do I have it? You know, or you're going to have to try and develop those instincts to really know when you have it and know when to walk away. Got it. All right. Let's talk about nudity. Um, what? Nudity. You have, because you've got um, naked guys and that phenomenal sequence of, of, of her ent entering that pod in the, the very finale of the, of the Leftovers. Um, how do you handle it? What do you do? Well, you know, Carrie Coon's a, oh, God, we were so graced with her, with her brilliance. Um, so anyway, this, you know, the script came. And I called her into my office, at, you know, to talk about the scene and to talk about sweaters, <laughs> you know, like, you know, and makeup in terms of the older look for the book, of, the book of Nora. And like, I remember we had a big discussion about the pink sweater versus the gray sweater. Da, da, da. And then and then I said, listen, you know, you have to walk into the character walks into uh, the machine and she's naked. And I said, I, I don't think it's gratuitous. I think it's what it is. I'm, I believe in it. How do you feel about it? Do you want to do it? And if you don't want to do it, I will shoot it in a way where we don't see frontal nudity. But I believed in this, in this sequence. And I believed that it was necessary and, you know, and frightening to see a woman standing full, fully naked. Uh, about to enter this crazy machine that was going to take her to another plane. Um, and she said, yeah, I'll do it. Just like that. You know, it was really, it was like, no, you know, I, it was just, it was just like that. And cause she trusted me to shoot it, uh, you know, to not do 10 takes of her walking down. And I also, you know, there was one take where I didn't want to show her breasts. You know, I want I framed it a certain way, and you know, you know, use the wide shot to, you know, to show the loneliness, the nakedness, the woman who's now a child again. You know, and um, you know, I know she worked out a lot that week or two, and she had a tremendous body, and. Um, and she was, you know, she's just a pro. 
she had no problem with it. Did you clear set? What did you do? Yeah, I cleared set. I cleared monitors. I had monitors turned off, you know, so that nobody could be watching it except for maybe three people um, who needed to watch it. And that was it. And then those dailies didn't go to anybody except me and Damon and um, the DP. And, you know, the studio didn't even see them until they saw the cut. And the, the scene with the, the uh, a man totally naked. The man totally. Oh, Justin. Yeah. <laughs> he was naked a lot. <laughs> Justin would just do anything. He'd jump into water. He'd come out of water. The poor guy. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, you know, he wore a cover-up and, um, you know, cleared the set. I always have private sets when there's nudity involved. Um, you know, people don't need to be there. Just the camera operator, folks puller can be out of the room. I don't need to be in the room, you know. Um. All right, let's move to camera. Mm. Uh, and, you know, um, your Emmy um, from an ER episode, um, I think in many ways must have trained you forever in <laughs> how to move the camera. Because there are phenomenal shots in that episode, the 360 degree shots, uh, just the camera is moving and always seemingly appropriate. Now, as a filmmaker, you may notice them, but as the storytelling, I want to get in there and that's what the camera's doing. Um, talk to us about your approach to camera itself. As you said, you, you know, study cinematography as well. What, what is your general approach when you're sort of looking at a scene before you actually go on, even onto the set? What, what yeah. goes in your mind visually? Well, you know, I look at a scene and I evaluate the scene. Like, obviously, you know, what are we trying to say in the scene? How do we want to say it? You know, do we want to, um, you know, be with the person? Do we want to be back from the person? You know, what does it call for? You know, it, it, it's all about the narrative. And so the narrative speaks to me and then I decide, okay, I'm going to, I just want to stay in this person's POV. I want to do this handheld or it just, it's just organic how I see things. Um, sometimes, you know, like. Um, do you like, visualize when you read a script? Yes, always. I'm almost, I'm like shooting it when I'm reading it often, oftentimes. And, um, you know, for, um, for uh, on the basis of sex, I looked at like Michael Clayton a lot. I looked at that lighting and I thought it was incredible. So Brady and I, you know, I said, Brady, I want it to look like that. You know, I love that natural lighting through the windows. It's beautiful. Let's, you know, so, you know, we look at, we also look at, um, I also like to look at film and talk about light. And um, so with ER, you know, ER was a different sort of situation. You know, I didn't, Rod Holcomb shot the pilot and it was incredible. And he shot about 25% steady cam. And then when I came on to be the exec producer on the show and director, I decided to shoot it like 75% steady cam. And, and I wanted all the shots to be motivated, not just going around in circles because we can, you know, but let's find a reason to go around and, you know, with the chaos. And um, so it's the story that always dictates to me really how I'm going to shoot it. And it's always a, you know, discussion, you know, like, for example, 
don't know if I should tell this story. Tell it. Tell um, it. I'll tell it. It's the peacemaker. Okay. Is this so, that great oneer that goes upstairs? Oh, that's not the one I was going to. Okay, no, no, no. Tell the one you're going to tell. Tell the one. <laughs> I can tell you about that one too. So there was this. So we're shooting there for the. Well, it was after we shot the plane that scene I was talking about. So we're shooting in this uh, bombed out apartment building, supposed to be in Kosovo, and. Um, you know, I had Guy B, who's now a director, incredible director. Um, he was a great steady cam operator. So I had him on a crane on a platform, you know, doing a big wide shot. And then I had the crane come down and I had him step off and walk through the uh, courtyard, seeing the children playing on the swings, you know, in the poverty and into the door. And then we could do it dissolved because... I wanted to go all the way in, we couldn't, so things changed. And then I did a 360 around the terrorist and the little piano player, who was my daughter, Hannah. She was nine years old. Um, yeah, and she was actually playing Chopin. But anyway, um, uh, so I did this shot, and it was incredible. I mean, I thought it was pretty damn good. So, see, I shouldn't be, this is a story I should not be telling because it's not nice. So my producer was there before he left for LA, one of my producers. And he said, Mimi, you know, I think you should shoot this in vignettes. Boom, 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 boom. And I went, really? Why? And he goes, well, I just think that's what you should do. And I went, okay. You know, it's my first feature. And, you know, I was like, okay. So I shot some vignettes. They stayed in the can. I never used them. I never put it in the movie. And when he left, he, you know, gave me a big hug and he said, oh, Mimi, you're such a great director. And I went, really? Why do you say that? I mean, it's just like, it just came out. And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you're, tell you're, you're telling me how to direct the movie. Why are you telling me? How to, don't you like the way I'm directing the movie? No, no. You know, anyway, he left. So I do my cut. I'm at Steven Spielberg's house showing him my director's cut anyway <laughs> anyway um showing him my director's cut and the other producer was there and of course my shot you know was in the movie and after the shot Stephen starts clapping going great shot Mimi I love it and you know I'm sitting in the back with my editor just kind of smirking and then after the movie you know the other guy producer came up to me and said I, I want to apologize to you for treating you that way. Anyway, I don't even know why I told do water, you. Do the water. The water. There's a okay. amazing uh, water there. Yes. Um, so, you know, we were in Slovakia and Macedonia shooting this movie. And Les Dilly, our uh, production designer, who brilliant guy, um, built all of Washington, all the hallways. He did it there. And so we had to build this national security uh, I forgot what it's called. It was whatever the building was. And um, I had this wonder I wanted to do. Clooney comes in and um, the guy speaks to him. They, you know, I had designed the whole thing. Uh, they walk up the stairs and I take them to the second floor and to Clooney looking over down to where we were. And it was a really cool shot. And the set was built. We it was built for the shot. And I mean, that is a luxury. And 
So yeah. the shot, now the, the idea of that, for example, that second story, when you were reading the script, did you visualize, mm, wouldn't it be cool to have this? And in fact, not on one stage, what if they went up so they could look down at it? Was that part of? It wasn't the script. No. I mean, it, yeah, I, I visualized it and discussed it with Les. And he said, okay, let's build it like that. And then, of course, I had to stick with my shot. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like, here, there's no going back. You know, they spent all this money so you could do this shot. You better do it. And you better do it well. You know, talk about camera in terms of sort of this action, the action sequence in the, the motorcycles and all the cars all trapped near the end of, of uh, Deep Impact and how you designed that because it's moving oh. cameras. And, uh, well, okay. That huge sequence where uh, Elijah Wood is looking for his girlfriend, that's the scene you're talking about, right? So we're in Manascus, and Joan Bradshaw uh, was our producer, and, and Casey Caldwell was our first AD, who's incredible. And we, they, they put, and th that whole team, um, you know, went to community centers and said, you know, we need extras. We had, so we had 2,200 extras. They all came with their cars. They all were packed, you know, to go running away from the comet. We had big trucks set up with first aid and, and water, um, you know, and, and food all down this highway. And this highway was going to open like in two days. We had two days on that highway and it was going to open the next day. And so we were going like crazy and there was no CGI, none. Those were all real cars, real helicopters in the sky. And, uh, and, and it was a hundred degrees or 106 degrees and hundred percent humidity. And it was a very emotional scene in the middle of all these cars where Elijah Wood finds Lily Sovietsky and the parents, one of them played by my husband, Gary, uh, Gary Wernz, and um, they, there's a glance that Denise Crosby looks at the baby when she sees him, decisions made. You don't know what the glance is, but they, you know, Elijah Wood and Lily hug, embrace, and the parents come out and say, take the baby. And it was a very emotional scene. It was one of those scenes, I just did it on the Steadicam. I just kept moving. I, get, I just kept telling Lily, like, just keep saying, no, 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 I'm not going. And no, I can't do this. Da, da, da. You know, I, I can't take the baby. And, and it was just, I mean, what would you do, you know, to, uh, to save your baby's life, to save you, you know, take the baby to higher ground, you know, live. And it was, it was just one of those scenes that everyone was so exhausted and hot and sweaty, but everybody was so into it. When you walked in, did you walk onto the set? and see these 2,200 people? Or did you know at least in a day in advance you might have 2,200 people? Oh no, I knew it was happening. But I was, and you know, they started bringing the cars in at like three in the morning and these people stayed there. It was crazy. And then they came back the next day. Most of them, <laughs> you know. You shot on location. You shot obviously in studios. Um, what is the decision for you when you want to be in the studio? So, for example, I guess um, the, the, the apartment or the courtroom in, in uh, Basis of Sex, real or built, 
um, um, versus you know, practical locations. I assume almost all the Australian sequence in, in, in Leftovers is all on location. What's, when do you make a decision, I want to build? Uh, well, a lot of it has to do with your budget. And, and um, you know, on the basis of sex, we, uh, Nelson Coates, uh, production designer, another genius, um, who's working with me now, um, built the courtroom in a nunnery because, you know, we couldn't find a courtroom we liked or that would work. So he built it and we cut this nunnery. It was a huge space. He cut it in half and, and, and he put this beautiful mural up. And, and it was extraordinary. And, you know, um, it's interesting uh, in, uh, in the leftovers, we built that house that, that, um, that Lindsay Duncan lived in, the ranch house. We built it. It wasn't there. It had a 360 degree view. And we shot it in this place called the Yu Yangs. And Gene Kelly was our exec producer who had shot Band of Brothers. No, I think Band of Brothers. Um, in the Yuyangs, and he brought us there. And, and we just, we built this ranch up there. Uh, John Pino, the production designer, wonderful. And, um, you know, because we, we looked for many ranches. In fact, I looked at ranches. I was really um, very much into Picnic at Hanging Rock. It was a big inspiration for the third season. And um, I was all over that rock, looking at every house in that area but it just never worked visually there were too many trees and so i abandoned that notion and we built the ranch there um i personally love locations i love it when we scouted the third the third season of australia we went to um adelaide we went to melbourne we went to we went to uh the outback broken hill where we ended up shooting um, we, you know, we went to Sydney and we decided to base in Melbourne. And when we were shooting, when we were blocking, when we were looking for the outback, looking for the locations, right where I shot, um, Scott Glenn watching the dancers, the indigenous people dancing, um, you know, there was no script. Tom Speziali and I and Gene Kelly were in Australia. We were going you know, just, this is a interesting. And I said, I love this place. It was called the Pinnacles. I said, because I had these little pinnacles everywhere. And I said, I love this place. I want to shoot here. I don't know what we're going to shoot here, but we're going to shoot here. And, you know, then the script came and I said, okay, let's go to the Pinnacles and shoot. There's a rock there. The thing, you know, so scouting is, it's wonderful. You can, you know, it, I would just like say that, you know, shooting in Australia was sacred. You know, this is one that's, of the old culture. And um, it was extraordinary to be there. That scene with the indigenous dancers. Um, what had you been told about them? And was this a real water dance that they were doing? It's quite. Yeah, they, this is very unusual. Because um, they all have their own communities and their own songs and their own dances. And three communities came together to write this song and dance for the show. And the day they presented it to me, it was 
it was just so moving. And we had a smoke ceremony before we started shooting on the sacred land. I mean, all of Australia is sacred land, but we all went through a smoke ceremony so that we would be blessed and, and we would bless the land and promise not to promise to keep it safe. And um, anyway, uh, Australia was one of the great locations uh, I've shot in. I loved it. Well, you know, I, I'm glad you talked about making it sacred and safe um, and honoring because um, it's obviously one of the things that we need to continually do as human beings now and honor the planet that we're on that's been giving us a warning that if we don't take care of it, it's not going to take care of us. Um, so I'm glad you went through that ceremony. Um, we just have a couple minutes left. I uh, wish we had much more time because I, I'm learning. Um, and I'm sure those people who are with us are learning too. But advice that you would give to, um, and maybe do give to new directors who come to work with you, what advice would you share? Maybe in a general terms or even a specific terms? Well, I mean, I would say to a young director is follow your own instinct. Don't follow mine. You know, don't follow anybody's. Just, you know, if you have a story to tell, I'm talking about if someone's directing a feature, you know, and they, it's theirs, it's their baby, they've created it. It's their story to tell. And they should tell it the way they want to tell it. Don't let anyone tell you you can't tell your story the way you want to tell it. And even when you come on a set that's established, a show is established, or a new director is coming on, I want, obviously there's a style that's created, but I really encourage directors to bring something new. You know, surprise me. Tell, you know, tell the story in, in the way you want to tell it. Uh, well, Mimi, you've been telling and continue to tell stories, though way you want to tell it um, and have the courage to tell them even when someone is saying went this way i'm glad stand up for your vision because it's so effective uh, i thank you for the time you spent here uh, i wish you uh, good luck uh, in the season as it opens and uh, the new world of uh, production affects you and all your colleagues uh, so thank you so much for, for being with us and, and uh, stay safe and stay sane. Everybody stay safe. Thank you. Be well. Be strong. That wraps up this exclusive discussion with Mimi Leader. If you'd like to hear more from the Craft of the Director series, check out episode 262, which features director Judd Apatow discussing his filmography. Or visit our YouTube page to find discussions with David O. Russell, Leslie Linka Glatter, and Guillermo del Toro. The Director's Cut is available wherever you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.